Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I've been in here all morning. <laughs> gonna leave you for 40 minutes, man. All right, dude. Cool. Yeah, man. Brilliant. Checkity check, check, check. Can you give me a little... Uh, hello, hello, hello. <coughs> volume. <coughs> I want two, one, two. How much... Um, do, do, um, how close do you want me? That's as close as I think you need to go. One, two, you one, comfortable two. comfortable there? How's that? That's great. So, Joe, have you done a podcast before? Because I was looking on iTunes, search your name, and there wasn't anything specifically podcast. It I was... did one this morning. Oh, you did? Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I've got I to make sure I put this one out before. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say, done, this yeah, is I've popping your a, cherry. I've done, a, I've done a bunch of stuff with, like, Sirius XM and all that stuff in the States, but um, I, don't, I, I don't remember anything specific. I mean, I just talk to people and whatever happens to the tapes or whatever yeah, format yeah. we're recording until... I have no idea. <laughs> we just wind you up and you go. Yeah, they just ask me questions and I answer them as best I can. You know. For the format of this show, I like to try and make it more of a conversation than an interview and just kind of go with an informal sure. tone. Um, I wonder if you could tell me about growing up in Sheffield in the 70s and sort of set the scene for that time and place and how that maybe you know shaped your psyche going forward into life. Well, Sheffield in the 70s was a, <clears throat> a city, the only place I knew, so I couldn't make any comparisons. I mean, now it's hard to unscramble the egg of comparing it to Middlesbrough or London or Carlisle or Manchester or whatever. But it's all I knew other than maybe 
holidays in Wales, you know. Um, Saundersfoot? Hmm? Saundersfoot, was that where you used to go? No, no. we used to go to Abersock or Aberflower. Right, right. And uh, Pigeon House, which was in, <laughs> somewhere in the north of Anglesey. I don't know. I mean, you know, I was just a passenger in my dad's car. You know? Yeah, yeah. But um, it was, you know, it was a city um, of... I don't know how many people. It was a million people, half a million people living in Sheffield. It, all, all I knew was my neighbourhood, which was Broomhill um, and Crooks. And you'd occasionally nip down at Encliffe Park, which was like going to another planet, you know, because it was like a bus ride away. Um, <clears throat> but growing up in Sheffield, I realised now that I don't know how important it was in my psyche of music because the radio that I was listening to was also the same radio that Phil Collin was listening to in London. So we were tuning into Radio Luxembourg and Radio One and watching Top of the Pops and picking it all up from there. So location and geography was kind of secondary to what was being fed into our psyche from, you know, the only medium we knew, which was radio and TV, you know, and, and it was very limited back then. Three TV channels, eventually four. So every um, band was Radio larger One. than life, right? Yeah, I mean, so you get on top of the pop, you get to watch Top of the Pops once a week, and you see bands like Slade, and we just got colour TV, so they're all trying to outdo each other with fancy costumes, and you got Sweet and Slade and T Rex and Bowie and Wizard and Mott the Hoople all wearing these mad clothes and writing these brilliant pop rock songs, and that was that was you know, and, and meanwhile, when you weren't watching Top of the Pops or listening to the radio, you were out with your few mates kicking a ball around in the park or playing tennis when Wimbledon was on and playing golf when the Open was on and going to the pitch and put and Chasing just being girls. kids, you know, no, not that age. <laughs> no, <laughs> didn't know what a girl was. Um, I was never very good at it anyway, but, you know, I was uh, totally into the sports, totally into the music, and we just had a very tight neighbourhood. knew four or five kids. I went to school went home I was, I was an only child so I kind of had my own world which I certainly don't regret one bit because upstairs to the record player and that I was your way there. into that world yeah I was I was I was really lucky that um, I seemed to have had this gravitational pull towards music as a kid you know relatives have told me that the first thing I did when I crawled was crawl to the radio. Really? You know, and, and I, I love I, it. When I was four, I was with the plastic Paul McCartney guitar stood on a little stool trying to sing Love Me Do and it was obvious that I was gravitating towards music at a very early age. I wrote my first song was when I was eight. So my mom got a guitar and then I wanted one and, you know, rightfully so, both my parents said, well, if you learn to play, we'll buy you one for Christmas. So she, I had my mom teach me the few chords that she knew, and we would swap and learn songs together. And then I started, and I wrote one. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, "This, I like this. This is fun." You know, it was it was right up there with kicking a football. It, obviously, better at the end of the day, but um, yeah, it was the most ordinary, extraordinary childhood you could ever expect. You know, really good parents very disciplined but not overly strict totally got the fact that I loved music because they did too they never stopped me watching it I wasn't banned from watching David Bowie because he looked weird they were like he looks weird and that was just a comment not you're not watching that you know yeah. it was it was just normal really and you formed Leopard when you were 18 right or you joined what was the well we precursor. we got together in my 
parents, well, in my bedroom in my parents' house. Um, in almost 40 years ago, I met Pete Willis in the street and just said, I just bought this Les Paul copy, exactly like that one. There we go. A Gibson. <laughs> and uh, 30 quid from a junk shop on London Road. And um, I was, you know, I was inspired in 77 by the likes of the Pistols and the Clash, who... We, you know, even I could tell at the age of seventeen, weren't exactly musicians in the sense of, you know, playing guitar like Jimmy Page or Eddie Van Halen or whatever. And um, it's like, well, if they can, I can, you know. And I bumped into Pete, and I knew he played guitar. And he was a friend of a friend, if you like. And I said to him, you know, and you want to, you want to get a band together? And he said, oh, I've kind of got one, and we're looking for a singer. So I just blurted out, well, I'll do it. So they. He said, okay, we'll... I said, come round to my mum and dad's house and we'll talk. So he brought Sav and Tony Kenning, who was the original drummer. And the four of us just talked, just like this. Like, and we talked about the music that we liked and stuff that we should be listening to. And I was playing them stuff and they were going, oh, have you heard this such and such a band? And I go, what, you mean this lot? <laughs> wow, you've got a great record collection. And that was pretty much it. By the end of the night, we had the name of the band and nothing else. And That's I, all you need a good name, though, right, when you're starting out? You know, I mean, I, I suggested it because I'd come up with it at school and I'd been carrying it around in my head for two years, and Tony Kenning suggested the misspelling of it, which was genius. Um, I just thought it sounded good. It's a ridiculous name, but I just thought it sounded good. And powerful. And, well, yeah, but it, it's become that, but it's, it was just different. You know, yeah, it was, yeah. that was the important thing. It was just weird. Um, and then we slowly but surely started moving on from this idea of being in a band to actually being in a band. In other words, Pete had a guitar, so we occasionally, we, I guess we'd go around to his house and listen to him play. And then we got, Tony found a rehearsal room down near Bramall Lane and it was this old spoon factory and we cleared out all the machinery and kind of cleaned it up a bit and painted the walls and it was like a den. We still haven't played a note yet. We put posters up, we dressed it up, and we brought, started bringing bits of gear in, we were borrowing stuff. I didn't even have a microphone, you know. Got a bank loan to buy some gear, and had a very accommodating bank manager who was a huge music fan, so he's like, okay, I'll lend you some money. And then I bought a mic, or borrowed one for the first rehearsal, and literally I'd been hanging with these four, these three guys, the four of us had been hanging together for five weeks before I even opened my mouth to sing. You know, it was just the weirdest thing. Um, so I suppose we did form the band that night, but it was the most arse and upwards way of putting a band together. I mean, there's been other examples. You two were very similar. They got together as an idea. None of them really knew what to do. I'm not even sure if they even had an instrument picked. They said, oh, you be the guitarist and you be the singer. And then it was kind of a bit like that with us, you know. But we got going and the enthusiasm carried us through any <clears throat> lack of ability that we had. And first couple of days that we were together we'd abandoned attempting Stairway to Heaven but we'd nailed doing Suffragette City by David Bowie and um, that suited me fine because that's the kind of music that I really dug you know and then we started writing songs and within the first couple of weeks me and Sam had written Ride Into the Sun we started piecing stuff together and we had we had a little Christmas gig for some friends in the rehearsal room December time when we were still a four piece and uh, 
put some lights up. I don't know why we did it. And we even wore some weird stage clothes and like three friends sat cross-legged on the floor and played for them. These half a dozen songs that we knew, which were like Suffragette, Jailbreak, My Lizzie. I just had Scott Gorham on. Yeah, a couple of other songs. We ended up doing like loads. We used to do Emerald. We used to do Rosalie. We did Jailbreak. We did a bunch of covers. Just uh, we used to do Rock and Roll Susie by Pat Travis. We used to do a ton of stuff. Um, but we only did like we had four songs by December. But we used to just keep playing these four songs over and over again. And then Steve Clark joined in January, I think it was. And then we just started to expand because it gave us a more ideas, a bigger sound, and it broadened our horizons. So we could do Lizzie songs better with two guitars, and we could do harmony guitar stuff and thicker rhythm stuff and, and, and then Steve would come in with song ideas and you know one of the, I think like the fifth song we ever wrote was Wasted because he came on this riff and we were like just jaw droppingly like you knew blown away something special that riff were like whoa that is something special and yet it was still early, early 1978 you know we hadn't got a clue what we were doing but we were having so much fun doing it when did Peter Mench enter the scene? And did he sort of broker that deal for you for the first album and, and get things going early No, we on? were already signed by the time we met Peter. Um, right. We were managed by two guys, one from Nairsborough in Yorkshire called Frank Stewart Brown, and the other guy was Pete, Pete Martin, who ran Revolution Records in Sheffield, where I used to buy all my bootlegs from. Um, <clears throat> it took him six months to trust me when I said... <laughs> Pull things keeping an eye on all his vinyls. Like, do I really look like an undercover <laughs> cop? Come on. And um, I took the EP and we'd done the EP. We did that independently of anybody, you know. And I asked him if he'd sell it, and he said, "Yeah, sure." You know. And he says, I said, "What do you want to sell it for?" I said, "A quid." And he said, "I'll give you the full pound. I'll just sell them." You know. I took them to Virgin Records. They wanted twenty-five pence. I was like, Bastards. Um, anyway, I went in on the Tuesday. I gave took something on a Saturday morning or whatever, and. I went back in on Tuesday and I walked there from work, I remember. I said, did we sell any? He says, yeah, you sold three. Because John Peel had been playing it. And uh, he says, more importantly though, he says, I've listened to it and I think it's really good. And me and my mate want to manage you. So I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. So they were managing us for, you know, it would have been summer of, we recorded it in, November 78, <clears throat> so I think it probably came out around about January, February by the time we glued the sleeves together and posted it off and, you know, did whatever you could to advertise it existed. And 79, we signed the record deal in on August the 5th. It was the day after Zeppelin played Nebworth. Um So Peter Mensch was, he wasn't involved yet officially, but he was unofficially involved because come was October, he already no- managing DC. At yes, that time. Yeah. come October, November, we'd got the Highway Hell tour, and our current management, which was Pete and and, and Frank, thought that they'd got it. In actual fact, it, the carrot had been dangled by Bernstein and Mensch. Mensch was working for Lieber Krebs, and Cliff was about to leave Mercury Records for Lieber Krebs, having heard our EP in Chicago. God knows how it got to Chicago, but he came across his desk as an A&R man and he played it and he told the label in London, under no circumstances let this band sign for anybody else other than unit, than Polygram. So, Madge was Cliff's best friend, so they were in cohorts to 
hijack us from this management company at some stage. But we got the ACDC tour, and halfway through the ACDC tour is when we approached Peter Mensch to manage us because we knew that Pete, we knew that uh, Pete Martin and Frank were out of the depth. Tell me about that tour, Joe. That's that band at the peak of their power, right? Yeah, it was, a, you know, I mean, for us, it was the most astonishing thing at the time that you could ever imagine. We were getting open for ACDC. There was a lot of heat on us. So ACDC's fans can notoriously, like, go against any opening act. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was the way it was. I remember when Alex Harvey opened for Slade and when he first went on, they were throwing things and by the end of the night, he'd won them over. It was, you know, it was just the way it is with support acts. It's either they ignore you or they stay in the bar until the headline act come on. Or they throw things at you if they don't like you. <laughs> One of three. And with us, it was, <laughs> we were lucky that, you know, ACDC's audience kind of dug what we were doing or whatever. And we we got a good reception from their crowd. But every night we would go out front and watch them start off the show with live wire. And I will never, ever forget being in the balcony at the Glasgow Apollo and thinking it was going to collapse because it was moving a good 12, 18 inches like a trampoline. It was scary. So I was, me and Rick Allen were standing in the doorway in case it did go down, we'd still be on the staircase, you know. It was crazy, but it was great fun because Bon Scott was totally brilliant. He was so sociable. The rest of the guys we barely got to know. Cliff Williams, obviously, was okay being English. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Malcolm and, and Angus and, and Phil Rudd were hard enough to crack. You know, I think Angus came into our dressing room once to just see what kind of guitars the guys were playing and that was about as social as he got but Bon was fantastic did you have a few drinks with him? we had well I still owe him 10 quid bless him oh. um, he came into the bar with what a tennis and he saw I think we had four straws in one pint you know and he said really? he said buy yourselves a drink pay me back later that's the kind of guy he was <clears throat> yeah, he was a great guy. Um, and he was, you know, he was a fantastic frontman. Um, and it was such a shame what happened to him because we found out he died the night we were playing the Sheffield Top Rank. Um, you know, news broke differently back then. There was no internet. Yeah. And because Peter and Cliff were looking after ACDC, we, did, we got to hear it before anybody else. And it was just a horrible night, really. It wasn't fun to think, oh, man, I can't believe he died last night. You know, and so... We, it was, uh, you know, it was just one of them things that you learn to deal with over the years. It was the first time that we'd come across that kind of thing where it was like personal because only a few months earlier we were talking to him and it's like, man, I saw him 10 quid, you know. And But then, of course, you move on and then Black in Black comes out and we get to know Brian Johnson and he's like one of my best friends now and no better man to replace Bond. But, you know, the respect that, is, that even John has got for Bon Scott is, you know, it's second to none, really. He's totally respectful of the fact that Bon was what he was and he's he's grateful that he got to replace him but would have been happy enough to never do it, you know, and, and Bon still be there. So that's <clears throat> that's the mark of the man that Brian Johnson is. What do you think about what happened with him and the way it was dealt with? Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't have done it like that. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't, speak for Angus and his team as for what, what their reasons were for doing what they did but considering that we had a, a, a drummer lose an arm and we waited for him the way that they dealt with it was not the way I would have done it put it that way
It was quite um, interesting seeing the band perform live with Axel, and he did. Yeah, you, I didn't did think you get he did to see a, those shows. I no, I he, saw some stuff on YouTube, and I think he did a pretty good job actually. I've Especially the Bon era stuff. Yeah, know, he, he was. You know, he's a huge life. fan, so yeah. he took to that like I would take to singing a Mott song. You know, um, it almost seemed to have helped with the redemption of him as well in terms of his. Perhaps yeah, he certainly wouldn't have done them any harm. You know, I mean, obviously there's detractors in any walk of life or anything. So somebody out there thinks it was awful. Some people think it was the best thing ever. You know, so. It is what it is, but it kept ACDC on the road, I suppose. But it's not really ACDC anymore, is it? I mean, you've no. got Chris Slade on drums. Cliff Williams is now retired. Um, God bless him, but um, Malcolm is in a nursing home. So they've got Stevie Young, who used to be in the day Starfighters, opened for Def Leppard in 1981, 83, was it? And him and Fraser Young, the other cousin, used to sell T-shirts for us. Really? 1980 on the On Through the Night Tour. So they've got a huge so, like, Scottish you know, family, have they? Yeah, like, so, you know, you're looking at... It's basically just Angus and the other four now. The Angus Young show, yeah. So I don't know whether Brian's ever going to come back, but, um, you know, my memories for ACDC, I prefer to keep them on, you know... Well, you're not going to top that side the of highway hell era like, tour, are you? No. <laughs> well, the Biking Black Tour was pretty good, Yeah, i got to say. Yeah. You know, I mean, I saw, I saw them live, and I think Jonna really stood... He, he stepped up to the plate. It's a hard thing to do, but... I suppose he was fortunate in the fact that Back in Black was a bigger album than anything that they'd done before. So to a lot of people, they hadn't even heard Bon Scott. It was like a new band, you know, outside of the UK, in places in Australia, in America. It was their first really big record, you know, so. How many copies is that sold then, if that's the highest selling rock and roll album of all time? Because we're obviously celebrating 30 years of Hysteria this year, and that's oh, 25 Black, million, right? Back in Black sold way more than Hysteria. Really? Probably at 35,000, 30, 35 million. We're, we're somewhere like 23, 24. A lowly 24 million. I don't, yeah, I mean, uh, trust That's me. That's crazy, right? I'm not, yeah, crazy. I mean, putting it into that context, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm really not. No, no. I'm just saying it's a phenomenal amount of records. I think Backing Black's pretty much close to selling the same, if not more, than Thriller. Yeah. And there's not many black people would have bought Back in Black, you know. So that's a phenomenal amount of records to sell. And it's one of those records that never dies. It keeps popping up on the soundtrack of Iron Man and it keeps popping up in God knows how many movies that, that's, you know, that songs from Back in Black have featured in. And that keeps helps keep it alive, you know. It's a brilliant record. It's a fantastic record. I remember the first time we ever heard it, we heard it before it came out because Mensch came on the bus with a cassette and said, listen to this. Fucking hell. And we were like, whoa. You know. Hell's Bell's first song in yeah. that sequence order, yeah. Yeah, it was somewhat special, you know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talk to me about Mutt and his role in the, you know, the evolution, perhaps, of the Def Leppard sound and the friendship there as well, because he came on for High and Dry, right? Yeah, very important. You know, we, we, we were aware of who Mutt was years before. I remember being in the Spoon Factory and playing the guy's records that he produced, saying, this guy's amazing. You know, and it was people like Graham Parker and Supercharge, uh, the Boomtown Rats, the Motors' first album, which he produced. Brilliant. City Boy. They had a hit with a song called 5705. That was produced by Mutt. Um, I said, this guy's amazing, you know. And he came to see us open for ACDC at the now defunct... Uh, what's the arena in the Midlands? Um, in Birmingham, or? Yeah, near Birmingham. NEC? No, no, that's, yeah. no I'm going back 1980. I can't remember what it's called. It's that long since. But anyway, it was, an, it was like the only arena outside of Wembley right. um, that anybody ever played. Bingley Hall in Stafford, that's the one. And uh, Mutt was there because, I, you know, we were opening for ACDC and Peter Mensch by then was saying, I want you to watch this band, tell me what you think of them. So Mutt watched and Mutt was like, yeah, all right. There's something there. It's a very rough diamond. It needs a hell of a lot of polish, but there is something there. Yeah, I, you know, he's probably saying, do you think we should manage him? And he's like, well, why not give it a go? And then they ended up managing it. And I remember saying to Mensch, you know, when we finally got together to make this first album, which by then Mensch was managing us, was there any chance that we could get Mort Lang to do the album? And he says, absolutely not. Um, so, okay. So the three choices we had were Roy Wood... Charles Chandler, who did all the Slade stuff, and yeah. Tom Allen. And as soon as the word Tom Allen got mentioned, Pete Willis just went, him, because he'd done the Priest stuff and Pat, and Pat Travis live album, and he was a huge fan. And Pete at the time would have been the pussy one of the five of us to say, <laughs> you know, I would have gone for Roy Wood because of the Wizard and the Move stuff, but, you know, I get Tom was great, you know. But Tom was there to capture the... Just catch, put the lightning in a bottle and put a lid on it, you know, not to expand it. Just we've been playing these songs live for 18 months or whatever. Nobody was ever going to tell us to change them. Mutlang would have tried to do that and we'd have resisted and it wouldn't have worked out very well, you know. So when we started working with Mutt, we were fortunate enough with Iron Dry that we didn't really have that many songs written. We had bits. Um, and so they were so embryonic, it wasn't that difficult to want to change them. But you know, just backtracking a bit there, we did on through the night and Mort heard the album and he was hearing the album and going, could have been so much better. Yeah, I want to work with him because he, he saw that there was something there that could be moulded. We were a piece of putty that needed moulding and he was the potter, he was the, the artist, you know. And um, we were the willing students to work with this guy that by at 1981 had done Backing Black, yeah. Highway to Hell, He'd done all these records that I mentioned earlier that I'd played the guys, you know. He'd done Foreigner 4. Um, and we were like, we wanted to work with him. We wanted to learn from this guy. We didn't realise how intense it was going to be compared to the Tom Allen production of when he just literally 
watched what we did and, and, and oversaw it without making that many suggestions, it was a different way of producing. But, it, I mean, it was very enjoyable. We had the best three weeks ever living in John Lennon's house. Well, it was Ringo Stars by then, but it was John Lennon's in 1971 when he did the Imagine video in that house. And Was the piano still there? No, that no. was a pool room. Right. Because Dr. Hook just left as we arrived, so we played them at pool. Um, this first time I'd met a proper celebrity was Dr. Hook in the medicine show. It was hilarious. <laughs> um Smoked my first reefer with them, one of them, I think. <laughs> and um, I didn't like it, and I've never done it since. But um, Does it make you paranoid? It makes me really paranoid. I don't remember. <laughs> you knew didn't you like didn't it. like it, and that was it. Um, and so, you know, we had a great lot of fun. I mean, I, and I got the long straw, so I got Lennon's bedroom and had it for three weeks. And we had, we did, we made a record. We had sub tournaments. You know, I played, the first time I'd ever played a piano was that day. That's that, those three weeks I saw a piano taught myself three chords so I could learn to play Imagine because it was, it was the house it wasn't the piano but it was the house and it was a great great time but you listen to the record now and you go yeah we should have spent more time on the record and not just celebrate the fact that we got a record deal and why isn't this great we're in Lennon's house in Ascot and, you know the, you it, think you could we were, have achieved we were what 15, you did 16, sooner. 17 and 19 years old that's incredible. What do you great. expect? You know what I mean? It's like, we were, it was a boy, carry on camping, you know? It was great. But when we went in with Mutt to Nomis in London to start prepping this album, a month of pre-production before we even entered the studio, it was like joining the army in comparison. He was regimented and disciplined and would not take sloppiness. And he was like, well, and we were like, it's not going back to school, you know? But, you know, that kind of, leveled off and we got to know each other and we started having a lot of fun together the fun really started on on pyromania but we got through that is that iron dry record and the leap of professionalism on all parts there was from performance to just the way we approached it was massive compared to the first record as far as we're concerned i mean there's Still, people out there that think on through the night's the best I could have ever made, and good, the thrash God, fans like yeah, that. yeah, God yeah, bless yeah. them, you know. But I mean, you know, the things that like story is a woman; it's hardly thrash. Um, but with, with with high and dry, we just took it to the the next level. You know, there's a lot of ignored songs on side two that are really good. I think things like "You Got Me Running" and which is very clever pop rock, if you like. But side one really cemented. A, a relationship with an audience that allowed Pyromania to be what it was but yeah Mutt was a very in, integral part of the band and it still is he's, he's always there he's like um, he's like that great teacher that you talk about forever the mentor the yeah, yeah. the sounding board the referee the, the everything that he was and still is I mean Phil talks to Mutt at least once a week does he really well? Mm-hmm. he used to ring me up all the time especially if Ipswich Town had won because he's a huge Ipswich Town fan which is weird because he's I think maybe because Colin Viljohn played for Ipswich and he's from South Africa too. And Mopp in South Africa and he just like, I don't know, he just adopted Ipswich Town for some bizarre reason. Wrote a song for them actually once. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> Were you bigger in the States before you sort of cracked it on home turf? Oh yeah. Yeah. You, well, yes and no. <clears throat> on Through the Night went top 20 in England because of the fact that we toured all the clubs January, February that year, 1980. Actually, January, February and even... Then the album came out, and then we went into the city halls. We had Magnum opening for us, and then a local band in each town, so like Newcastle, like the Tigers of Pantang, and that kind of thing. 
Um, I don't remember anybody else, but I remember the Tigers of Pantang. But the album went top 20. You know, we sold out the Sheffield City Hall in 1980. It was great. Which is like as big as it gets at that age. Yeah, right? and it's like, well, where do you go now? It's like, we've got to go to the States. You know, and then we went to the States and then we got slagged off for it. Which is like weird because the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Led Zeppelin and everybody else and the grandmother had been to the States where we go. And it's like, because we had a song called Hello America, we were sellouts. Which is a bit weird. Um, and it kind of set this precedent in the in the UK for us being dealt with suspiciously. We were always treated with suspicion by people. Until 1987. After 86, it kind of improved. And I you know, I put it down to the fact that they couldn't deny the, how good Pyromania was, even though it didn't sell in England at the time. It's kind of caught up now. But after the Donington gig with Rick, which was his first real gig after the accident, and then with, you know, Hysteria coming out, it was like the younger siblings of the people that didn't that went off us in 1981 their younger brothers or sisters came to and went we don't care what you think that's my band and then from 87 onwards it was but so you know for us to get major success in england was almost 10 years after we formed which is longer than the beatles were together do you think there's something innately british about wanting to tear people down and being perhaps envious of success because I do find there's a cultural difference between the states where they're all about yeah encouragement and embracing and yeah the, the, it was always that way you know the the joke used to be oh the the comment used to be like back in the late 70s early 80s that um, if somebody saw a Rolls Royce drive down the street they would give it the finger and try and key it in america they would clap and go good for you um, it's kind of changed a bit. I don't think it's as good in the States now, and it certainly ain't as bad in England. I think it's leveled off. I yeah. think people understand it doesn't matter. Everybody that's got a favourite band, that band go to America, no matter what you think. They also go to Australia, Japan, Norway, and Germany. You it's can't just tour the UK. Now, yeah. The only people that can tour the UK is like Robbie Williams, because he's not big anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. You know, take that maybe. You know, there's bands that sell trillions, or even Oasis. They could headline. They could headline Nebworth. and they couldn't sell out any gigs that we've done. Even on the Slang tour, we were doing more business than Oasis. You know, I mean, it just depends where you, which side of the coin. You, you look out and you toss it up, you know. I mean, we've had a we've had a strange ride with the with with, with the English press and an English audience, but it's levelled off. It's all fine now because it's the same everywhere, you know. You only have to read any article, and then if you're brave enough to just go to the comments underneath, there won't be anything good about you. So you just don't go there. You don't know read I mean? the comments. <laughs> don't read them ever. I think what's great about you guys is the sort of the net of admirers and fans and musicians who've been inspired by you is everyone from kind of, you know, Jeff Hanneman all the way through to Taylor Swift. And that's quite a, well, a testament to the legacy of Def Leppard first. Yeah, we've noticed that more people outside of rock get what we do if they're musicians than the ones inside. The ones in rock, they, they, want, they don't think we rock enough. So, you know, we, again, there's that suspicion around where our true roots are and all this kind of stuff. We've said, well, they're not in metal. I've been trying to tell you that for mm. 30 years. Why don't you listen? You're more in the vein of Queen than, say, and, Guns N' Roses, yeah, right? Yeah, and as we said, like, when we did the covers album, we said, look, we have talked to death where our roots are and you've not listened so we're going to sing and dance it instead yeah. so here's an album with songs by Roxy Music David Essex ELO Badfinger Blondie T-Rex David Bowie Mott the Hoople John Congress and we 
tipped our hat to rock with Thin Lizzy, The Faces, and Free. All 70s, iconic, yeah. classic. You know what I mean? Not Deep Purple, not Black Sabbath, Sabbath not Led Zeppelin, not Uri yeah. Heap. Bands that we all love, don't get me wrong, I've got records by every one of them. But the, the heart and soul of us is the pop rock side of stuff, the radar loves, the God gave rock and roll, hold your head up. Um, songs that infiltrated the pop charts that were guitar-based rock. Even if it was Susie Quattro, it didn't matter. You know, Slade, Sweet, you know, had some awful songs, had some amazing songs, but they had some great guitar-based rock and roll with a brilliant drummer in Mick Tucker. Um, he was arguably as good as Ian Pace on Deep Purple, you know, I mean, there were, there was some good stuff coming out of the Sweet Camp, you know. Um, but we've always been this band that's kind of been misunderstood. So you've got, like, the rockers go, hmm, but then you get people like Taylor Swift and Pink and John Mayer and, and Katy Perry and, and, and Elton John all going, these guys are brilliant. You know, because they're good songs. You know, because they, they see the song side of things. Yeah. Not, it's not the reputation or, oh, you guys, the harmonies are too sweet. No, they are what we want them to be. We're not trying to be Judas Priest. Judas Priest do a great job of being Judas Priest. They don't need another one. No. So, you know, and we weren't going to be UFO because we had too many singers in the band. And we weren't ever going to be the Beach Boys because we weren't going to be good enough. We could be kind of leaning towards Queen a little bit. But we were never going to write songs like Lazy on a, Lazy on a, um, was it, um, Bring Back Leroy Brown, a kind of comedy songs, if you like. We weren't going to do that. But we could try and rewrite Now I'm Here or Tie Your Mother Down. They were the kind of things that we were interested in. Um, you know, bring Back Leroy Brown and... and uh, it's Late. You know, uh, what's the other one they did? Uh, Lazy on a Sunday Afternoon or something that of... Um, Day of the Race, Night of the Opera, which just just preceded the uh, the most amazing song in I'm in Love With My Car. You know, um, that was the kind of, you know, you listen to that song and go, God, I wish I'd written that. You know, that, yeah. that, was, that was our yardstick. We wanted the, the flexibility and the songwriting prowess and variability of a band like Queen, but with the power of ACDC. That's where we were trying to come from. You got to play with Queen and Slash, right, at the Freddie Mercury yes, concert? Yes, I did. I got to sing night? Half of Time Mother Down. Brian says, I want you to do it. So I'm going to sing the first verse, but you can sing the rest of it. I said, okay, cool. I also sang it at his daughter's wedding. I wow. sang Tell Your Mother Down. And uh, <laughs> I've done it at Hammersmith Odeon with Brian, Def Levin and Brian May. Brian has played with us on stage. Ooh. LA Forum, 1983, Hammersmith Odeon, 2000s. We did the, he did 20th Century Boy with us at VH1 in LA, in, sorry, in, I think it was Nashville, about 2006. We played on stage with Brian, and then in 2014, he got up with the Kings of Chaos to do uh, Tell Your Mother Down in, in LA at the Classic Rock Awards. Would that band ever come so, over I mean, to me the and, UK? So, I mean, me and, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Brian May and Def Leppard go back a long way. You know, he's a yeah, big yeah. fan, and, and he did the liner notes for the booklet, you know, for the Planet Rock release of the last album. Um, I was just with him in San Jose to three weeks ago when Queen played San Jose and he just left me the most ridiculous voicemail for my birthday. Um, me and Brian go back a long way. We were neighbours for a little while in London and we've been friends since 1983. So us and Queen, not with, I'm, a, I'm a huge admirer of their music, but I got to know Brian over the years and you know the, the respect for each other's bands is enormous. He's a good guy. He's one of my best friends. Who's your sort of go-to drinking buddy? Well, it has been over the years. Brian Johnson yeah. is one of them. Um, I've had a few raucous nights with the boys in U2 because location-wise, yeah, I yeah. live in Dublin and I see those guys around. And Does Bono like to tie one off? 
Occasionally. Um, yeah, he's yeah, you know, he's the king of Dublin. So yeah, yeah, uh, you know, he's. Um, I haven't seen him for a while, in fairness, uh, except from a distance because I saw him at Croke Park two weeks ago, and they were fantastic. But um, yeah, Ricky Warwick probably would be my closest because he lived in Dublin for a long time. Me and him, we were joined together at the hip for about fifteen years until he moved to Los Angeles. And now it's much, you know, it's just sarcastic texting every day. <laughs> he, t- he, fancy, he texted me this morning because he he woke up. He said to my ugly mate Mug on BBC Breakfast TV, and he's just on his way. They're, they're on the way to Norway because they just they, they did rambling man last week. And, yeah, yeah. So they're they're touring right now. So. You know, me and Ricky are really close. Um, I produced his first two solo albums. And, well, yeah, John are pretty much, you know... I mean, I don't really hang out with many musicians. Most of my drinking buddies are, like, just normal people, like plumbers or electricians or teachers or whatever, you know. Kids that I knew when I was a 15, we used to go to gigs, and we still know each other now. You know? Nice. I think there's something to be said for that. It keeps you grounded and it keeps you humble. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't... I don't every time we go through Florida if it's a day off I go to Brian Johnson's house because he invites me down you know and we hang out and we sometimes we get a bit squiffy (laughs) and you know if you're in LA and somebody's at Sunset Marquee it can turn a bit ugly sometimes too you know (laughs) it turned very ugly for me in San Jose right and I haven't had a drink since really five weeks yeah is that consciously yeah 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 yeah. because I woke up the next morning and went I think I'm done for a while right and it just happened to be the first of July when I finally sobered up and I went I'm not drinking for the whole of July and I'm still not drinking right now so you're going to try August and then I don't know I was going to have a drink on my birthday but changed my mind I couldn't be bothered you know but um, I had a great time at the Queen gig you know if there's any Queen fans listening go see him it doesn't matter whether if you don't think you like Adam Lambert he does an amazing job and it's one of the best productions I've ever seen in my life just to watch it's a visual spectacular and and they are on fire Roger and Brian are on fire Absolutely brilliant. And just seeing those songs live mm-hmm. must be a special thing. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. They're playing myself, a ton but... of stuff from uh, News of the World that they haven't nice. played since. Are they playing fact, never, never play. Yes, they are. Yes. Um, they're playing all sorts of mad stuff. You know, it's very, very good. Well, Joe, um, I guess we've got to wrap it up there. Congratulations on like, 40 years, you just said, as a band. Which 40 years of band, 30 years as the, the iconic album of our back catalogue, No Denying. It is. Yeah. Can we get a sign on this? Would you mind making it out to me? You won't hear this on the radio. You won't hear this in your headphones. But I am signing this particular. 180 gram. 180 gram. 30th anniversary edition. Is that your proudest achievement right there? Well, this autograph? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) The album, Joe. It's. Yeah, I suppose it is because it's lasted longer than any other record we've made. You know, there are. There are people, of course there's people are going to be listening to this going, oh, it's not as good as Pyromania and I went off you when you went pop and it's like, well, this is who we are. This defines who we are. You know, um, it defines where it was, it was the zenith. It was really, it's like, where do we go from here? We can go any direction because this gave us everything. It had rock, hard rock, it had soft rock, it had slow, it had fast, it had medium. It had commercial, it had uncommercial. It had extremely weird stuff on it. And it's, you know, it was very experimental for, for the year that it came out. It's, it's, you know, it's, and it's lasted the test of time. Um, for the most people that listen to it, they're still listening to it, you know, which is, hey, if you've got one record in your arsenal, 
like Dark Side of the Moon for Pink Floyd or Sgt. Pepper for the Beatles or Hotel California, Rumors for Fleetwood Mac, whatever. You only have to have one. If you get two or three, great. One is better than none, you know, and this record is the thing that we shall forever be judged against, and that's not a bad thing. Step inside, walk this way, you and me, babe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 